Hi, I'm Gali Cooks, and you're listening to Just Leading, where we're thinking differently about leadership within and beyond the Jewish world. Each episode, we talk to someone whose life's work is leadership, someone who's redefining what it means to be a leader in their community. The stereotypes people reduce me to are just ideas. They're not true. I realized people aren't seeing me. People are seeing ideas of me. And it was those ideas that kept me depressed and paranoid all these years. And I realized I wasn't alone. Anu Gupta is an immigrant, a founder, a lawyer, and social scientist. He's on a quest to understand and build global belonging. He does that by helping people address their unconscious bias. But what does breaking down biases actually mean in practice? For Anu, it's tied to mindfulness. I was also curious to hear what struck my co-hosts about Anu. So I sat down with Alana Kaufman to get her thoughts about Anu's mission. I'm so curious, right? Like, I'm so curious about this individual who comes from a pathway and a, a training that's steeped in mindfulness. It's steeped in an immigrant story, steeped in the story of being part of the LGBTQ community. His work is around, like, responding to racism and oppression. I'm really curious about how that all expresses as making the world a better place in terms of racial justice. Let's dive in. I'm so excited to be having this conversation with you. And I'm wondering, as we launch in, if you can give us a two-minute version of your story. Um, Well, first of all, I want to say thank you so much for having me. I've been really looking forward to this conversation since I got the email. But basically, you know, in summary, I'm a scientist, an educator, and a lawyer. And I have this company called Be More With A New. And what we do is really train people in science-backed, compassion-based courses to break bias, particularly racial bias and gender bias and the nature of unconscious bias itself. And our hope is that by doing that, we can, of course, advance racial equity and belonging, but not just in our society as a whole, within our workplaces, within our communities, within our faith communities, within our schools. Hmm. So the cost of bias is pretty excessive. My journey really began around doing this work. Senior year of high school, when I was selected as a high school apprentice at the Museum of Jewish History, a living memorial to the Holocaust. That same year, right after I graduated high school, I was selected to go to the Weizmann Institute in Israel for a month to do research. Both of those things kind of very early on, um, deeply, deeply showed me the nature of the work around bias and its massive, massive implications on the nature of genocide, the nature of hatred, which can be put on huge megaphones and the implications of that in our society. In preparation for this podcast, I was reading a lot about you, obviously, and learning more about your background and your journey, even beyond the two-minute version. And it's clear that you're incredibly skilled. You're super smart. You have an infinite amount of choices in front of you and paths you could have taken. And I'm wondering, why did you choose this path? Oh, wow. That's such a profound question. And actually, I, I I guess the first answer that came to me was because I turned inward. Ever since I was a young child, I was always just curious about the human condition. And spirituality for me has always been so expansive. I was basically training to be a doctor and I was a scientist. So the reason why I went to the Weizmann Institute of Science was because I won a kind of national science competition in the United States 
And they basically took the winners to be a part of a summer camp. But being in that environment, once again, instilled in me this sense of curiosity about how human beings work. And, you know, while it's great to look at the intricacies of how our bodies work, the emotional life that we all had was something that a lot of people weren't looking at. And I think for me, that emotional life also became very personal the more I went on this journey. So the reason why, as I was giving tours at the museum, sometimes I would just end up crying. There was something deeper, right? But I'm sharing a story of another 17-year-old who was taken to some concentration camp. I can relate to that human experience. And a part of it was familiar. I was that kid. You know, my name, my full name was Anurag Gupta, right? An immigrant to the United States, to New York City. But I felt incredibly othered throughout the time I grew up here because I was the only one that looked like me in the communities I was a part of. In all the honors classes, I was the only one, right? And oftentimes I was just like feeling like I don't truly belong here. I'm like truly that exotic person. So that nature of internalized racism that I was myself combating really brought me into really thinking about what can I do? How can I be a fully living and being, you know, human? The easy path was follow the path of my parents. They're both physicians. My sister's a physician. Everyone I know is a scientist. I think that kind of really began my journey at a very young age into really thinking about different cultures. And I actually wanted to commit my life to international human rights. Right after college, I lived in South Korea, um, working on issues of reconciliation between North and South Korea, um, and also started a nonprofit in Myanmar. So again, ethnic reconciliation work. But I always gravitated towards Asia or the Middle East because that felt familiar to me. Not because I'm from those cultures, but because I didn't feel othered there until I went to law school. And I went to law school not because I wanted to. There was no desire. I went to Cambridge because of um, this esteemed economics professor, Hajun Chang. But he told me, you're too much of an activist to be an academic. I will not accept you into a PhD program. <laughs> and I was like, what? What am I going to do with my life? My mom already hates me because I'm not going to be a doctor. And that's when he was like, I think you ought to look into this idea of the law. I just remember it was my first year in law school. I was volunteering with this group called Prisoners' Rights Education Program, PrEP at NYU Law. And it was probably my second week in law school. And we went up to Bedford Hills, which is a women's prison in New York, where I was going up there to teach prisoners about their legal rights. I literally felt as if something I was wearing on my body called liberty and freedom was taken off my body. It was just a felt sense experience. And of course, being there, I saw just the racial makeup of the prison, majority women of color or women from, you know, impoverished backgrounds. So it was, I couldn't, I couldn't look away. I think I was activated to look inward more and begin to heal my own like internalized racism and what I, the kind of expectations I had for myself. I never thought I could be a leader or leadership for me was always like white male. And it's been a journey (laughs) to redefine that. Do you think you would have been on this path had you not come to New York from India? And, And like you said, you felt othered. Do you think you would have been on a similar trajectory? The one thing that I did grow up with in India was the divide between Hindus and Muslims. And particularly in 1992, I was seven years old. 
there were these huge riots across the country over a disputed territory, but the memory of that is still so alive. That memory is just surface level of all the deep, 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 deep wounds that have existed between these two communities for hundreds and hundreds of years. There's a movie, it's actually a, it's actually a Telugu movie, it's a Bollywood film called Bombay, which is basically about a multi-religious family, a Hindu man who marries a Muslim woman and they have kids. And it's just such a beautiful story of this particular time. And I remember being a kid and really loving that movie um, because it kind of touched something deeper, right? into our humanity beyond these stories and ideas we create about ourselves and what ultimately matters, which is love. Oh, Anu, your story is so familiar. I was born in Israel and when I was seven, we moved to Minneapolis and I remember being in Minneapolis and feeling so different, but I was white. So I was able to pass. I was able to drop the accent. I was able to blend in. Uh, to a point because I have brown curly hair and I was in the land of tall, straight, blonde haired folk, but it was a different kind of feeling than what you're experiencing. And I often think about that. And it gets me to thinking about another core element of your work, which is really helping people change their behavior. And I'd love for you to talk a bit about how you're using mindfulness in order to do that. In America, we had this facade of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But if and only if you fit that mold <laughs> of mm -hmm. whiteness. And, you know, part of it is like, I think people that claim to be white are victims of that too, because it, you know, stults their own, you know, authenticity, yeah. their ability to, to be their full selves. So I think that's kind of where the journey began. And after law school, I was really, you know, blessed to have a boss at a at the Vera Institute of Justice, I asked her to let me do a research project to describe systemic racism without using the R word, without using the word racism. She was like, go ahead, you are passionate. And so I was able to hire researchers and lead a research project to basically identify four components of systemic racism, bias, trauma, lack of resources, policies. And they all have a lot of descriptions, but across the board, whether it's education, healthcare, employment, um, criminal justice, political participation, these are four interdependent ways and reasons for racial disparity. It's not one or the other. And I was like, oh my gosh, we did it. And by that time, the research on implicit bias had reached a point where they had shown beyond a reasonable doubt that implicit bias or unconscious bias is the cause for discriminatory behavior in healthcare and criminal justice and marketing, wherever you in employment. So I was like, oh, wow, it's so all the other three kind of components are dependent on this thing called bias, conscious and unconscious bias. And incidentally, you know, I was on my own spiritual journey, you know, really pursuing mindfulness, but as a scientist, not as a Buddhist initially, as a scientist, really thinking about kind of the research around the mind. And there was research coming out showing that mindfulness-based tools like MBSR, like MBCT, measurably reduce unconscious bias. And that's how BMORE was founded. And I decided to really focus on the first of those four components, which is bias, and really train people in breaking bias 
using these mindfulness-based tools. The objective is behavior change. Everything we need to know about racial disparities and how to address them has been written about. All the scholarship is there. You know, behavior change takes daily practice or at least regular practice. It doesn't have to be daily, but regular practice because there is no silver bullet for this work. When people know things and when they've developed the skills to apply those things, then we can propel things forward. So let's say I'm a CEO of an organization. I know that we have a lot of work to do in general as it relates to diversity, equity, inclusion. I'm asking myself, where do I start? For me, like that's why we are shame-free. So it's science-backed uh-huh. and passion-based because the resistance is the fear of being called a racist or this or that. But this is where we have to be mindful, right? For me, it's that we need to move forward and what's holding us back is shame. And that's why I love Brene Brown's work and her research. Shame is something that holds us back and prevents behavior change. When it comes up, let's acknowledge it. But let's also see what's associated with this shame. Let's heal that wound and have this non-judgmental space for us to actually learn. So this is a, a purely this is a purely selfish question. Since I am a new parent, I'm wondering what advice would you have for people raising kids? I'm not a parent, so I definitely advise parents to really do what feels right, but particularly around this topic of bias. I think one thing is, is to start early and not to hide things from our kids. You know, yes, we have an unjust system. Tell them mm-hmm. this is how the system is designed and it works in favor of these people and these other people, even though we're all the same. We're human beings, right? So I think, and then inspire their moral imagination. But the opportunity is you get to change it. I think for our kids, particularly because of technology right now, um, there is a way that they are going to experience a different level of dehumanization. Because I'm already seeing it with my nieces and other young kids where they're feeling a little emotionally stunted. There's a lot of performance. So I would just dote them with human emotion. Like I think emotional intelligence, compassion and love and patience, all the values that we want to bring to the world as leaders, right? In our organizations that start at home, particularly with our kids, like really love them unconditionally, like really, really do that. Because I think that's going to make them stronger people, stronger citizens, stronger, whatever they end up becoming. Mm -hmm. But that self-love if we can give our kids early on, then they can take the world. I enjoyed this conversation with Anuz so much. I was familiar a bit with his methodology, but to hear the details of his journey makes all of it more meaningful. I was also really struck by how he described the ways in which we make up our society. Organizations are made up of people. Systems are made up of people. If we take the time to know another person, to hear their story, that's how change is going to happen bit by bit. Our goal on Just Leading is to continue making you think differently about leadership. Next week, Ilana Wien will be leading the charge. She'll be speaking with Tina Chen, CEO of Time's Up. 
It does take a while to learn your voice and to learn how to exercise it. I sometimes have to remind folks, even my own children, you know, who sort of see, you know, the 60 plus year old version of myself to remind, oh, no, 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 like I wasn't always like this. Right. So when I was in my 20s, you know, it, it, it was hard. I'm sort of now at the point where, you know, if I'm in the room, then I'm in the room for a reason. Just Leading is supported by the Harry and Jeanette Weinberg Foundation. It's produced by Wonder Media Network and Ariel Markowitz. For more information on the organizations we work for, check out the Jews of Color Initiative at JewsOfColorInitiative.org, SRE Network at SRENetwork.org, and Leading Edge at LeadingEdge.org.